1: A young man in Macon, Georgia, kept a daily diary of the events in his life and in that of the Confederacy, as both of them wasted away, one from disease and the other from civil war. Janet Elizabeth Croon has transcribed and edited this painful human story as The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live,
0: the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device download it from the apple app store amazon or google play and get ready to tune in the voice america mobile app powered by aircast the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com. you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War
1: Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building. On the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, the usual home of Civil War talk radio, but as also usual, not speaking for ECU or anybody else, just myself and our guest tonight will do the same, speak only for herself. Well, last week on the show, I mentioned in the introductory remarks an offhand comment about the University of Michigan's undefeated basketball team that I'd been following. And, of course, they went ahead and lost last Saturday. When will I learn not to say anything about any teams that are doing well? I could perhaps jinx the upcoming Super Bowl by praising one of the teams, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, A question that has come up occasionally in email from uh, listeners or just talking to people generally about uh, Civil War talk radio is how – does one get on the show? How do uh, the, the guests get chosen? And the answer is, uh, as, as Lincoln said in a different context, my policy is to have no policy. Uh, there's no specific way to do it. There are multiple avenues. One of the best uh, is your suggestions. Uh, if you write me an email, tell me who you're interested in hearing or if you've read a book that you think would make a good topic, uh, please let me know and often I will be able to contact that author and, and set something up. Uh, frequently the show topics come about because of publishers who are aware of, of what we do here and they'll send, uh, send me a information about an upcoming book or they'll e- even just go ahead and send me a book without uh, any solicitation on my part. In fact, there are some some publishers, some very well known ones. I'm looking here, in this big stack on the desk: Oxford, uh, UNC Press, uh, LSU Press, and then some uh, lesser known ones that uh, sometimes are even the, the sort of vanity press or self-publishing types. And uh, you know, some of those books will make it onto the show, and some some will not. Uh, sometimes authors will contact me directly. My email is, of course, not a secret. You hear it repeated every show uh, more than once, so that uh, spelling my name becomes a sort of... uh, uh, ceases to be a challenge after hearing it so many times. Uh, And I welcome that. If you've written a book uh, that you think would be a good show topic, feel free to get in touch with me. There are a few rules about... Topics that there are a few limits. Um, one rule is the five-year rule. I try not to have a guest repeated within five years, simply because otherwise someone like, say, Earl Hess could be on every week with the frequency that he produces new books. Uh, it would. It's a way to give other people a chance to to be heard. Uh, another rule is the books are not are, are nonfiction. They are not historical fiction. Uh, Another rule is the topics are limited to wartime, not books about Reconstruction or the antebellum era. And then a final rule is that I break all the rules as frequently as necessary. Thus, uh, we'll have a book, uh, Andrew Delbanco's important new book on fugitive slaves before the war will be coming up. Last week, we had a novel, a piece of historical fiction on Antietam. Uh, It was a novel brief aside, students today, and I don't know when this started, university students are under the impression that the word novel means book, and they use the terms interchangeably. They'll write James McPherson's novel, Battle Cry of Freedom, and every time it happens, I grind my teeth, and and it just uh, bothers me much more than it should. Uh, So whatever rules there are can be bent or broken at will. But I do find them useful because they can also be a gentle way of letting down an author who has sent me a book or written to me about a book that is just not one that I want to spend a week reading. Uh, It may turn out to be poorly written or not well-researched, or it may express an interpretation that I don't think is historically defensible. And I don't want to invite someone like that on the show just to spend an hour proving them wrong or arguing with them. That's not... Uh, the uh, profitable use of, of their time or mine or yours. So if I'm not interested in investing my reading week or your listening hour, it's often easier to tell an author, sorry, your book doesn't fit one of the categories. It's the wrong era or the wrong genre. Uh, and if if you are, in fact, an author yourself and get such a response, uh just a quick note, it does not help to uh, point out my inconsistency. Uh, I'm aware that uh, I may have had someone on who does historical fiction or writes about the pre-war era. But uh, if if you're looking for impartial rules enforced fairly and consistently at all times, uh, all I can say is, uh, first, I hope you were not watching NFL football last weekend, uh, especially if you're a Saints fan. Uh, and secondly, that you're more than welcome to start your own podcast to promote your book. But uh, ultimately, if, if, if it doesn't seem to me like something that you, the listeners, will benefit from and enjoy, then you know, that's, that's the final say. It's out. So that's where the books come from. Uh, I felt you were old enough to, to hear that at this point. Where, where do new book interviews come from? Coming up... New books in the weeks ahead. Next week, we'll have uh, Ann, Anna Holloway, who's the co author, along with Jonathan White, of a book called Our Little Monitor, in quotations, subtitled The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It's about the USS Monitor. And I'm looking at it now. It's made it to the top of the stack of books to be read for the next week. And it is a, a beautifully uh, produced book on uh, glossy paper. I'm very anxious to uh, read this, looking forward to it and talking about it with you. Uh, we'll do that next week. In February, we've got Aaron Sheehan Dean returning to the show. His new book is The Calculus of Violence How Americans Fought the Civil War. On the 13th, we'll celebrate Lincoln's birthday with Dan Weinberg, proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago. On the 20th, Caroline Janey returns to the show. Uh, she's edited a volume of uh, articles, essays on Petersburg to Appomattox, the end of the war in Virginia, a, a topic we've already touched on this uh, this calendar year. And then uh, the book I mentioned earlier, Andrew De ba- Delbanco, uh, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves, and the Struggle for America's Soul, From the Revolution to the Civil War. So lots of interesting things coming up. Uh, check out the Facebook page Impediments of War or the website impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date for us there and you can find out who's going to be on. Tonight our guest is Janet Elizabeth Croon, who has edited uh, a book, a remarkable book, called The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. Uh Subtitle: A remarkable account of the collapse of the Old South in the final years of a privileged but afflicted life. Let's find out uh, who this person was and more about his diary. From the editor, uh, Ms. Croon, are you there?
3: Here. Yeah.
1: Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. I'm looking forward to this.
1: Uh, so. Um, let me start by asking you a question or two, uh, just uh, about yourself. Uh, I, I want to ask about the diary specifically, but uh, what what uh, were you interested in the Civil War before coming across this diary? What what's your own background in terms of uh, interest in the war?
3: I want, I have been interested in the war. I live in Northern Virginia, and. Um, Found a, a, out about a, um, a local woman who was a spy for Stewart and worked closely with John Mosby, and have been researching that for quite some time. When I came across this, so I've I've got a background first from living in this area. Uh, unknown stories that have come to my, come to my notice.
1: So, uh, uh, where? How did you find out about this diary? And uh, where is the diary?
3: The diary is in the Library of Congress, and I came across it on Facebook of all places. Um, there was a, an article written by a Washington Post features author that outlined the diary for the centennial of the Civil War and the items that the Library of Congress were featuring from the collection. And the seven diaries, the seven in all, were part of that feature. And he described them. And as a high school teacher, I thought these would be remarkable to use the students to teach a Civil War.
1: So the the diary, the original of the diary is in the Library of Congress. Uh, had anybody published it prior to, to your work?
3: No, nobody had. And that was one of the things that um, I found remarkable. Um, I kind of got to know Ted Savas and contacted him. Um, he's at Savas Beatty Publishing, and asked him if he'd heard of this. He had not. He contacted other people. They had not heard of um, Roy, and so we decided to go with it.
1: That is one of those things where people say, you know, there's 10, 20, 30,000 books about the Civil War. How can there be anything new ever to write? And then you find something like this, which has been sitting there in plain sight in the Library of Congress all these years, but it had never been used uh, what what was the reaction at the library when you proposed publishing this?
3: I'm surprised, nobody had um, come forward asking to do to do that before. There were no restrictions on it, so there were there weren't any legal hurdles that we had to go through. And uh, I've gotten to know the curator of of this part of the library, and she was very much in favor of somebody publishing it. They they were very fond of the story. Um, Thought it was a remarkable source and we're very eager to get it published.
1: So uh, th- that's certainly helpful. I mean, it sounds like things were coming together. The library is, is happy to work with you and get this out there. There's no uh, strings attached to the donation of the, the diary to the library in terms of publication rights. So, uh, talk about the process of, of editing. What, uh, what did you have to do?
3: Circumstance. I was in between ankle surgery, so my um, ability to get around was limited. But they had digitized all seven volumes already, on, and it was available online. So anybody could go online to the Library of Congress and look for the Machin collection. LeRoy's um, diaries are part of a larger family collection. And so I was able to work on my computer, uh, having the... The page open and type along as I was reading, um, and that was that was pretty straightforward. I did everything exactly the way Leroy wrote it, including spelling mistakes, which for a high school teacher it was kind of hard to just leave them. But mm-hmm. uh, we wanted everything as he wrote it, as as much unchanged as possible. So that was that was my process: was basically typing things out. If I came across something. I was not familiar with or unaware of, then I'd stop and research it so I could put a footnote in before I went any further. So that was that was my process. After that, we um, went through some editing. Uh, my editor was very involved, um, my publisher was very involved in this project and um, it ended up being more than we anticipated, having more depth, more impact than
1: we thought it would at the beginning. Well, a lot of the, the books that Savage Spadey publishes are sort of bite-sized, 100, 120 pages, often on a single specific military topic. And this is a... Uh, and they're often paperback. This is hardcover, uh, over 400 pages with index. And uh, it is a much. It is more substantial than, than many of the books that they publish. You're absolutely right about that. The... Uh, the handwriting of, of Leroy Gresham, fortunately, based on the excerpts that you publish in the book, uh, is pretty good in terms of having to transcribe it. It looks like that 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 wasn't the hardest part.
3: No, uh, the handwriting had significantly changed. And what we discovered was that his mother was taking dictation. And we were able to take exit letters that are also part of the collection and go through them and figure out whose in writing that was. And it was his mother. So he ended up so weak and ill at the end that she was patient. So that, well, made, that made it interesting.
1: Yeah. We're gonna take a short break now and come back, talk about the contents of the diary. Our guest tonight, Janet Elizabeth Croon, is the editor of The War Outside My Window, the Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, eighteen sixty 1860 to eighteen sixty five. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Janet Elizabeth Kroon, editor of The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. We talked in the first segment about how uh, this diary uh, exists in the Library of Congress collection, and has been digitized, can be read online, but had never been uh, edited, annotated, uh, published, made available to a wider public uh, until now. So, uh, uh, Jan, you said you are a high school teacher?
3: I was. I am retired now.
1: Is it okay if I call you Jan as opposed to Ms. Kroon? Absolutely,
3: absolutely is. <laughs> You know, te-
1: teachers are w- w- one of the few groups left in American society who are routinely addressed by their surnames, and uh, as, as a professor, I appreciate that, and my wife teaches uh, at a high school, K-12 school, uh, and uh, teachers don't get paid much or much respect from legislators, but they do get the dignity of being called by their last names, uh, by children at least, Uh Anyway, uh, but moving forward here, uh, who was uh, Leroy Wiley-Gresham? Tell, tell us something about who this person was and, and what kind of family. And...
3: Well, Leroy was the middle child of a wealthy planter family um, that resided in Macon, Georgia, on 353 College Street. The home is still, is still there now a better breakfast. And mm. he was extremely bright. Um, his father had been an attorney, but it turned to planting after his law partner passed away. And Laurie was kind of like the favorite son. He, he was um, beloved by everybody. And um, started writing this journal in 1860 when he was 12 years old. He was taking a journey with his father to consult with a physician In Philadelphia, and his mother gave him a small pocket journal to write in. And it begins with typical 12-year-old type sentences. They're short, they're choppy, they describe. But as you go deeper into the diaries, get into further volumes, his his level of synthesis and analysis just gets um, way beyond his years. The kind of thing that a teacher would look at and go, wow, this kid is just exploded in what his intellectual capacity is um he was um disabled he had a leg that was broken in an accident when he was eight years old and he had health issues that kept cropping up after that point and that was the reason for the trip to philadelphia
1: so he uh, and in early in the, the diary as is- Printed. He was concerned about the, the leg that had been broken and it hadn't healed properly and wasn't usable uh, as he wanted it to be. But you point out he was also suffering from another disease of which he was unaware, but that would eventually claim his life. Can uh, you talk about yes. that?
3: Yes. Yes. Um Reading the extant letters, we know that his parents were aware of his illness. He had a very rare form of tuberculosis known as Pott's disease. It's spinal tuberculosis. So the coughing was indicative of something going on. And then he had what the Washington Post author called bed sores in that initial um, article that I read. Being unable to walk, he laid around a lot. He was pulled around town in a wagon. Um, because he was not able to walk by himself, but they weren't bed sores. They were, that was actually where the disease was exiting his body, but he knew none of this. I think the parents probably wanted to keep his spirits high and keep him with them. So he was not aware of what was happening inside of his body. So that made trying to figure out what was wrong difficult for us um, because he he's not telling us what's wrong. And at, we had, at one point, um, Ted Savas contacted one of his other authors, Dr. Dennis Rosbach, and we sent what I called Leroy's medical records. I just pulled everything medical from the diaries, sent it to Dr. Rosbach, and he read through them and came back with a diagnosis. And we were pretty much stunned.
1: Hmm. So so we know, the reader knows, and your notes make clear what's what's wrong with this young man, but... Uh, he did not know, and his parents chose not to tell him uh, what they surely knew was, was a, a terminal diagnosis.
3: Exactly, exactly. So it's hard to read because you do know um, what what is happening with him. Um, Dr. Rosbach in, included a, a medical foreword and a medical afterward to explain some of the symptoms and some of the treatments. Um, because this uh, young man was taking all kinds of medicines that you just wonder they're giving him a compound that includes mercury, um, caustic, um, all sorts of different other really lethal compounds that are not used in medicine today. Um, So he explained some of that. Um, He actually provided a companion book that goes into tuberculosis and it's its treatment in the 19th century. But Leroy's Diaries, we found out, is the only account of somebody who is suffering from this disease that has been written. So it's well, unique, again, it's unique mm-hmm. in that respect as well.
1: The, um, I mean, here in the 21st century, the United States is undergoing a crisis of opiate overuse. And... Uh, the doctors prescribe uh, morphine, laudanum, Dover's powder, Brown's powder, Paragoric—all uh, these different compounds. That, again, in your footnotes, you explain have uh, morphine or uh, opium or other, uh, you know, other powerful addictive drugs. Do you suppose that he was addicted by all this exposure?
3: Um. He didn't He didn't seem to be. He, he didn't want to have to take these medications, but there <laughs> were times where he couldn't sleep and he needed them. Um, it's an interesting question because I asked Dr. Rosbach, how could he be taking morphine and <laughs> laudanum and still write so wonderfully well? And his right. explanation was that Leroy, Leroy had an actual pain need. And so mm-hmm. the medication was going to where it needed to go in his brain to work on the pain, leaving the rest of his brain free to do normal activities. Mm-hmm. Whereas people that are taking opiates today generally don't have the pain need that he did.
1: Or, or they've outgrown it and they don't realize it and they're still taking it. And
3: uh, exactly. The, the exa- exactly. That
1: did not happen. His pain never left him, so yeah. that didn't happen. No. Now, the no, reason was, we're talking constant. about him on... Yeah, The reason we're talking about this book on the show uh, tonight, of course, is that it happens during the Civil War, and in almost uh, every daily entry, he says something about the events that are happening at uh, the front in Virginia, in Tennessee, uh, at Charleston, uh, at sea in the blockade. One thing that I'm very curious about is how did he get news so fast? He seems to know. On the day things are happening, uh, at, right until the end of the war.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, because he came from a prominent family, there were prominent people always coming to the home. And he was able to get information from the editor of the newspaper, Mr. Clisby, who had access to telegraphic communications. Mm-hmm. Um, he had people coming to the home who were military officers who had access to information. Um <clears throat> Excuse me. Newspapers, as, you know, they weren't always accurate, um, but he could get a hold of those as well. He did even do comparisons about the ones that he preferred, the embedded reporters like um, PWA. Um, he went by that, that byline that he preferred, who who's, he thought was uh, the better um, correspondent in the war. So that's how he was able to get information. But it also didn't come quick. Um, They didn't know about Gettysburg until a week or two later.
1: I found that very interesting that when the battles are fought in Virginia, where, where the infrastructure provides quick communication down to Georgia, he knows about it the day it's happening. He knows about the Battle of Chancellorsville the day it starts, for example. But Gettysburg, Mm -hmm. Lee is separated from the Telegraph. He's up in Pennsylvania. He doesn't hear about it. And then Appomattox, uh, a week goes by before he learns of Lee's surrender. uh, Because, again, there's obviously no communication at that point. And uh, I found that that, uh, an interesting window on the Confederacy's uh, communication network, how quickly this, this young man could get news from the front through much of the war, almost instantaneously. I was surprised how much he knew so quickly about each battle.
3: Yes, and and from all fronts, too. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. one of the things as well. He was interested in everything, Mm -hmm. from the Army of Northern Virginia to which were the more successful blockade runners. You find a lot of that in there as well, and he had opinions about that.
1: Now, he doesn't just write about the war and about his pain, although there's a great deal about each, uh, but he he also... seems to uh, he writes a lot about food uh, he he, there, he comments on on what he has to eat almost every day and it 's different and interesting
3: it is and that 's another one of the unique aspects of this book is that you 're able to see what it was like to live in a, a, a relatively well to do household, what kind of food they had what they what they did in their um, and their off time, their downtime, uh, what kind of entertainments they had. You get to see how Macon as a town changed. It went from a railroad crossroads to having an arsenal, an armory, a ballistics laboratory. You hear how the fairgrounds have been turned into a prisoner of war camp. Um, all kinds of things about just daily life. And over time, you get to see how things changed. For example, he marks... For you, the price of strawberries
1: over mm-hmm. time.
3: You can follow the inflation rate um, as as the currency goes up and down, and and as people are having to barter at the end for their their food.
1: That was one of the things that is most powerful about the book. Uh, it reminds me of the the famous diary from Dixie, uh, the um, uh, uh, Mary. I'm blanking on the name. I'm getting old now. Uh, Thank you. Mary Mary Chesnut's book, of course. Um, That uh, David Herbert Donald once pointed out uh, in a class I was attending how uh, her diary has – the, the romance between general hood and sally preston as a metaphor for the relationship between the army and the civil population of the south and the romance is not successful and uh, never consummated uh, mm-hmm. in the same way it, and and that's a semi-fictionalized diary by by the time it finally got published we you know here we have a raw document not not edited for publication but yes it's a compelling metaphor. Uh, he's dying from the moment the book begins. We read about his symptoms from day one and the Confederacy likewise is dying from the day it is born uh, under the, the burden of civil war. Mm-hmm. Is, is this art just imitating life? Are we just fortunate this worked out this way?
3: It's, I had one gentleman at one of my presentations remark that Shakespeare could not have come up with a better tragedy, because the parallels are so striking. And it is perhaps life-imitating art, um, because he he does, uh, he dies in the middle of June of 1865. Um, he knows that the war is over, and and he passes away shortly thereafter. Um, so the the parallels really are striking, and, and that's something that um, I try to to bring out when when I talk with people about the book.
1: You see the uh, the social symptoms that so you mentioned inflation. That's one of them. Where this is the Confederacy's economy is suffering. Uh, I was struck by the amount of social unrest that appears in here. Their house is broken into at least twice uh, during yes. the war. And one time it's just to steal food and soap. It's not not professional criminals, just hungry people. Uh, there's a riot in town, the housewives riot to, to get cloth for their homes. Uh, there's arson. Yeah. Uh, the, the the This reveals the Confederacy is not uh, the, the mint julep and magnolia society united in a single cause, but there's a lot of it coming apart uh, month by month, and he describes it.
3: Yes, it, it isn't all, you know, all happiness there, that there is societal unrest. Um, there were shootings. There mm-hmm. were, um, uh, accidents that would happen, railroad accidents he would talk about. Um, but there also seemed to be a lot of arson. There seemed to be a lot of mm-hmm. poverty. Um, he does, he does talk about, it, and he's concerned about the poverty as well. He knows he has it better than most people. And he is concerned about the poor and thinks that, Somebody should be doing more than they are to help take care mm-hmm. of the poor. Uh,
1: it, it's, uh, okay. uh, yeah, he's an extraordinarily perceptive young person to be uh, yeah. uh, writing as he does. And uh, obviously, another point of Southern society at this time is uh, the existence of chattel slavery. The, the Gresham family owns other human beings, and uh, yeah. uh, uh, he encounters slavery daily. Uh, he doesn't write about it a whole lot, though.
3: No, he doesn't, and I think that's a function of um, that's the the circumstance with which he grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's never been a question. He's always had these people in in his life. Um, he seems rather fond of several of the the people that are in his daily life. Uh, Howard, in particular, who mm-hmm. seems to be the, the the male slave who takes care of most of the the work and kind of steps in when. There needs to be a male figure around. Um but he he doesn't really comment on it um until the very end where he agrees with his father that emancipation should be gradual as opposed to all at once. But that's the only comment he really makes other than um condemning abolitionists, but who knows how much of that was, you know, coming from his father. Um as right. kids that age often do, they'll pick up political vibes from their parents. Um, now he
1: does. But, he, I would say he does remark on on the the fact when the war ends, the enslaved people on in his families ownership leave uh, one by one very quickly and he he observes that they're suddenly they're all gone they're not going to hang around now that they don't have to be there Uh, we have to take another short break we'll come right back and talk more our guest tonight Janet Elizabeth Kroon is the editor of The War Outside My Window The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham 1860 to 1865 I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio (laughs)
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Janet Elizabeth Croon, editor of The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. Young young person, 12 years old, in 1860, who kept a record every day, practically, of what was going on in his life as he uh, slowly succumbed to uh, a form of tuberculosis, while outside his window, he wrote about the Confederacy slowly succumbing to uh, the war with the federal government. The uh, Jan, one of the many side tidbits one picks up from this book is the reality of climate change. Uh, whatever one may think today about the causes of it, it's impossible to ignore the fact that he's writing about heavy frost in November, uh, the cold weather well into March of a sort that uh, you know, statistically we know uh, existed in the Civil War era but doesn't exist uh, today. Did, did you... Observe that uh, as you were editing. Oh, uh,
3: we yeah, yeah, I did. Um, one thing that we did kind of pull out was he took the temperature inside the house for about a year and a half, every single day, three times a day. Mm. And I figured if I get tired typing this, people are going to get tired of reading it. So he left mm-hmm. in the extremes, and it did seem to be a little cooler. Um it, it gets to the point where it's freezing in the house, but then again, they did not have central heat. They didn't have central air. And heating the home became an issue where they even moved beds from upstairs to downstairs in the wintertime because it was easier to just heat one level of the house as opposed to two Um we also found out from um, going down there and and speaking to people who have renovated and and know about these homes that the upstairs weren't as decorated as as much as the the downstairs was. Um, so it was breezier, was nicer in the summer, but but very mm-hmm. very cold in the winter time. So there were there were extremes that were surprising.
1: The uh, the story is not all one of. Uh, uh, Tragedy. I mean, the war is going poorly much of the time, and his health is not good. Uh, but he finds many ways to stay entertained. He reads voraciously, and he plays a lot of chess, which I found interesting. I've invested far too much time in online chess myself uh, for my <laughs> good of my productivity, but uh, uh, he's, he's very into the game, and uh, y- you list several games. You have the full notation of the games, which uh, I've... I, Eager to set up a board and try them out and, and see what happened there. Uh, mm-hmm. I imagine he got pretty good. Um, he, he knew a he lot was, of the standard openings and.
3: Uh, uh, yeah, he he was pretty good. Uh, we even found out. I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of research around the the family, neighbors, and people around it. We found that um, one of the neighbors. Um, he played chess with this woman on a regular basis with Mrs. Whittle, who lived right. literally around the corner. And she would play chess not only against LeRoy, but two other boys, both named Bob. They would take LeRoy in his wagon and go to Mrs. Whittle's house and she'd play all three boys simultaneous at times. And <laughs> his his goal was to make sure that if she won, she had to work for it. So uh-huh. he was he was very good at chess. He loved playing. And it was one of the things that he could do. There are a lot of things he could not do, but that was one thing he could do, and he could excel at it.
1: Well, speaking of things he could not do, and that really is the, you know, the, the central story here: his uh, health. Reading this book is. Uh, I guess not easy is maybe the best way to put it. Uh, In in your introduction, you suggest the reader not try to rush through it, go slowly. Uh, It's impossible to do anything else, really, because of the diary format. You can't simply skim uh, page after page because each page is a separate set of details. But especially, there's a point, I think it's in 1863, when... He's developed these abscesses from the infection spreading in his body mm. uh, that are emitting all kinds of fluids. He, he's coughing constantly. He can't sleep. He's sore. He suffers nausea, headaches, can't walk. Uh, at one point, he, he notes that he weighs 63 pounds, which I mentioned That's that to 15. my wife. She, she, yeah, He's 15 years old. She said that yeah. was her weight when she was nine years old, female. Um mm. He, he's I, I will put it this way there were times reading this book where I thought this is enough to put one off of whatever religion one might hold. How could a just and merciful God subject this person to so much consistent pain and suffering uh, with no mm-hmm. hope for for any any outcome but death um, he how did he bear up under this
3: he had he had a strong faith they were a Presbyterian family and he had he had faith and even at the end when when a few days before his death when he asked his mother if he was dying and she said yes he was angry but not at God not at at <clears throat> whatever had caused this to happen, but he was upset that he couldn't give away his personal belongings in a proper way. And uh, one question I would, I would have is, is Mm -hmm. how did they explain to him that he could no longer go to school, that he couldn't go inside certain buildings. He's so proud of his sister when she's invited to read her junior essay in front of the public, which for -hmm. a a girl was a high honor to show her academic prowess publicly. Mm -hmm. Uh, he had to listen from the outside, but it's never explained. At least we have not found yet. We're, we're still getting letters from distant family members, which is wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. How how that was explained to him? He just seems to accept it. That this is the life he has, and and um, that's what he's going to be be going with. You know, calm.
1: It, he does. At the end, you append a letter that his mother wrote after his death in which she talks about him, and we get a different picture of him from the outside, and uh, she certainly emphasizes his religious faith and his comfort with uh, his belief in the afterlife. I was a little bit struck by the contrast between that letter and the diary itself, in which there's no mention of, uh, of God uh, no mention. Uh, he talks about services, but at no point does he talk about his own faith.
3: No, you you have to notice it um, kind of by, by noticing that on Sundays he reads from the Bible or he reads something that is religious in nature.
4: Mm-hmm. That happens
3: every Sunday. He does get upset when a band is playing in town and marching mm-hmm. around, He's, that's not appropriate for a Sunday. He said, they should do this another time. So it's little tiny things, not, not things that are going to be uh, glaring out at you to notice his his faith. So those are, those are kind of small things, but, but they yes. are there.
1: Now, he also, I guess he doesn't have faith in the Confederacy... But maybe wants to, in in the sense that he he talks about recognition by England and France as the Confederacy's only serious hope for lasting independence. And Mm -hmm. again and again, he says, uh, rumors are they're going to recognize the Confederacy next week, but I don't believe it. He's very skeptical about these rumors. But he can't Mm -hmm. help but but repeat them again and again, uh, as if maybe he does want to believe them.
3: No, he would like for it to happen, but I think he's he's being realistic. It, is, it never does happen. But no. he knows that that is probably the one way where they could get the independence that they want, which for him seems to be the reason for the war.
1: Now, in the last uh, year of the war, the war comes home to Georgia. Sherman's army uh, captures Atlanta and moves very close to where he lives. Uh, And his his older brother Thomas is called into service, and at first he has uh, a position that keeps him out of the front lines, but eventually he's called to serve in an infantry regiment in in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, His sister has to leave home as a refugee to avoid possible arrival of the Yankees. Uh, So he really does see, ultimately, uh, the war itself. Uh, He can't go to it, but it comes to him.
3: Right, and somebody pulled him up on the rooftop um, when they talk about Stoneman's Raid in the summer of 1864. He watches as the town is shelled by artillery from across the Okmulgee River and sees all that happening. Um, And then his father is called into home guard service. He's 53 at the time, not 55, so he's not exempt. And he talks about how... His father has gone, and they need to figure out what to do with his sister. so it's Leroy that makes that decision he's he's young he's he's disabled, but he's the one who makes the decision, which I thought was very interesting um, but it, it does it did it did come home to macon for a, a short time a very short so, time
1: so, so he ultimately experiences all this and then finally. Uh uh, as you you describe at the end, uh, his the last entries in the diary are written in his mother's hand. Uh, he, he's apparently dictating them at this point, but too weak to write. Uh, he's too yeah. weak to keep any food down. It, it's obvious from mm-hmm. the outside. I, I guess one thing that that made this book uh, particularly difficult to read was, as a parent, um, it it. it as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, fourteen-year-old boy likes to play chess. Yeah, I could see that could have been me. But mm-hmm. m- then I'm reading it, that could have been my child. Um, the the anguish the parents must have suffered uh, trying to ease his pain is is just heartbreaking.
3: It it is very difficult, and I I have two grown daughters, one of whom has medical conditions, so I could totally relate mm-hmm. to. The difficulty of you know hearing from a doctor that you, this this asthma attack your daughter just had we may not be able to pull her out of the next one it's frightening um, yes. and they did for him the best they could uh, yes. given everything that people knew at that time tried to keep him comfortable tried to keep him um, busy and 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 doing things everything from sorting buttons to making envelopes. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is sad towards the end, um, few months left in his life where he, he wonders what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I can't just sit here. I must be Mm -hmm. occupied. I must be employed with something. And that's typical of someone his age. I've had my Mm -hmm. own students at 17, trying to figure out what am I going to do? What college am I going to go to? And he's got the same thoughts.
1: The, um we just have a few seconds left to just add the context of the times. There's a, there's a lot of other death and disease in the book. A lot of other people in, in Macon seem to be suffering and dying of disease. Uh, and, of course, uh, everyone listening to the show knows Abraham Lincoln and Mary Lincoln lost their uh, darling boy Willie in February 1862 mm-hmm. uh, to typhoid. It it uh, It was very common for parents to lose a child in this century, but... Uh, it made it no easier, certainly. Uh, Jan, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I would be happy if we could talk longer about this, but uh, the show draws to an end. Uh, so, mm-hmm. listeners, if you want to know the story uh, of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860, 1865, and get a, a view on the Confederacy you may not have had, the book is called The War Outside My Window. Uh, Jan, it's been a pleasure talking with you this evening.
3: Uh, It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a
0: part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. ¶¶